Hello and welcome to this teaching out of Acts, the book of Acts. This is chapter 26 and the title is Paul's Apologetic to the Roman Authorities, Part 3. Paul has been incarcerated in Caesarea for over two years under the rule of Felix. He was charged by the Jewish religious leaders with violations of their own law. He was not guilty of violating any Roman laws. Nevertheless, he was on trial before the civil leaders, but the civil leaders did not know how to resolve this matter since they did not enforce religious laws. There was a change in governors. Festus succeeded Felix. As a courtesy, King Agrippa, one of the subordinates of Festus, and in that time, the governors were the senior leaders. The kings were the subordinates to the governors. So King Agrippa made a courtesy call to Agrippa to welcome him to his position and to get to know him. And while there, he took advantage uh, of the opportunity to get to know some of the cases that Agrippa was dealing with. And one of those was, of course, the case with the Apostle Paul. The, and <clears throat> Festus was frustrated with the Apostle Paul because he didn't know what to do with this case. And Paul had appealed to Caesar. So there was an obligation on the part of Festus to send him to Caesar, but he didn't know what to tell the emperor. So he was looking for some wording, some explanation for why he was sending this prisoner to the emperor. He thought that Festus might be able to help. So this chapter records now the apologetic that the Apostle Paul gives in front of Festus and King Agrippa. The focus, of course, is King Agrippa. And you can tell by how Paul addresses King Agrippa, he's hoping for some help from King Agrippa. So we'll see what happens here. All right, beginning in Acts 26, verse 1, the text reads, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate. That's not a good translation of the Greek word there. A better translation, I think, would be blessed. He was blessed that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. You see, there's no civil violations here. It's just religious laws that have been broken, allegedly, according to the Jewish leaders. He goes on in verse 3, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know that my way of life, this is that is his lifestyle from my youth, which has spent was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. He was born in, born in Tarsus, and then he grew up largely as a teenager in Jerusalem under the tutelage of Gamaliel, who was one of the leading rabbis and one of the leading spiritual fathers of the day. <clears throat> they made known me. They have known me for a long time. If they're willing to testify that according to the strictest sect. Of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the the ones that were similar to this, the uh, what we would call the continuationists today. They believed in the supernatural. The other sect was the Sadducees. They did not believe in the supernatural. And Paul had used that earlier to bring division between the two. That was a strategy he employed. But he's making the point clear that I was a Pharisee. It's well known I was a Pharisee. I was trained as a Pharisee. I was a Jew. But now verse 6, now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors. The promise 
the promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him day and night. So you see, this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic promise where Abraham was chosen by God of all the people of the earth. He was chosen by God, called out to be the father of God, of the of the God's people, the ecclesia of the Old Testament, basically the people of God. And he was promised, number one, a land, a people, and a blessing. Three things, land, people, blessing. And of course, that meant eternal blessing. So everyone believed in this promise. And Paul is saying, I did too. That's what I was. I believed in as well. And I am being called into account for believing what everybody else believes. So he's starting out by making his point. There's no basis, for, in fact, for the charges against him. Going on verse 7, uh, rather verse 8. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You see, that's the key point in Christianity. What makes Christianity really unique is the fact Jesus was resurrected. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if he was not resurrected, then there is no Christianity. But the fact is, Jesus was res resurrected, and he appeared before the apostles, and he even appeared before the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And that point will be made later as we uh, continue through the text. So he goes on to say then that, in fact, I, I was myself... <clears throat> I was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prisons since I had received authority, that is, exousia, which is power of choice, from for that from the chief priest. In those times, religious leaders were granted civil authority. They were able to arrest people. They were able to try people and sentence them to prison, even to death. So he had authority. Paul did not act as an independent agent. He did not act autonomously. He acted under authority always. So he functioned to serve the purpose of the Jewish people. Reading on, he says this, when they, put, they were put out to death, I was in agreement with them. That is, when we, we crucified, we martyred people like Stephen, you saw that in Acts 6 and 7, and others that Paul was there approving, agreeing, and supporting those actions. In all of the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. So you see, Paul was very, very aggressive. He says of himself in Philippians chapter 3 that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that his, he, was, he was the mark. He was the best. He was the most vigilant. He was the most committed, the most sincere, the most faithful. He was the cream of the crop. And so he's pointing this out, and this is well known. This is not new information. So that's, he starts out by pointing to things that Everyone should have knowledge of. All you've got to do is talk to a few people and you'll find these things out about Paul. And you're wondering, well, why is it that there's even a, a conversation going on here? So it's, it's one of those things where you can see it just doesn't make sense, according to the Apostle Paul, that they would be trying him. And he's appealing to the civil authorities. Hopefully they will see this as well.
Now going on to verse 12, Paul says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority. That is, he had power of choice delegated to him by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he had a commission. He had a commission from the chief priest. So this is the basis for which he was making this trip from Jerusalem to Damascus, a trip of probably 100, 150 miles. It would have taken probably a week or so to, to make this trip. But as he's getting near to Damascus, something happens. So he says in verse 13, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. This is midday, the middle of the day. Apparently it was clear. Sun is shining brightly, but now there is an even brighter light shining around me and those traveling with me. Verse 14, we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, which that's a Hebrew dialect. Saul, Saul, remember that was his name, Saul. And it was at some point it was changed to Paul. We don't know the details of why that was. But it, <clears throat> the, <clears throat> Jesus spoke out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then Paul responded. He said, who are you, Lord? He knew the Lord was talking to him. He just didn't know who he was. It kind of reminds you of the burning bush incident in Mos with the Moses and Exodus, where Moses sees the phenomena of the bush, but that wasn't, it was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And he came over to look, and that's when he had an encounter with the Lord. And so there's always a question, well, who are you? Who is this person? Who, what is this phenomena I'm experiencing? And the Lord replied and said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And of course, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father at this time. So Jesus is saying to him, you persecute my followers, you persecute me. But he, then he says, but get up and stand on your feet. See, there's not a conversation that goes on here. There's very little said. And immediately, I mean, clearly Jesus is in charge. Paul is not given the opportunity to, to get into some kind of dialogue. Well, now how do I know you're Jesus? And can you prove that to me? All of that? No, it's evident. It's self-evident. This is Jesus revealing himself to the apostle Paul. Now get up, get up and stand on your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose. Now, the, actually, the Greek text doesn't use the word purpose. The word purpose is implied. So it's really just the demonstrative pronoun autos, which means this. I've appeared you, to you for this, for this reason, for this purpose, for this commission, whatever, you, whatever word that you want to put in there that indicates a strategic intent. And he says more specifically, to appoint you as a servant. Now, that word servant is interesting. It's not the normal word doulos. That's the common word translated servant in the New Testament. It's a word that refers to an under rower. It's, it's a nautical term, somebody that, that rows. And you know that in the boats of that time, they were basically sailing ships that had rowers that backed up the sail. So if there was no wind and the sail wasn't working, the rowers would row. So what, it, what this is showing you here is that, that God is viewing Paul as being a support to what he's doing. He's not the primary power. He's a secondary support to what he's doing. You are a servant, an under rower, and a witness, a martus. Remember, martus is the 
word for witness. Uh, we know martyr in English refers to someone who's willing to die for a cause or a purpose. But martyrs fundamentally has the, uh, the implication of a deep commitment and an eyewitness account. So we have here, Paul has an eyewitness account of what he saw. Now he was blinded by this light, so what did he see? It's not referring to what he saw physically, it's referring to what he saw metaphysically. He had an encounter with Christ. He became metaphysically aware that Jesus was alive. Jesus was not dead, Jesus was resurrected and alive and very much the Lord of the universe. And so that's what Paul is being given here is this revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Verse 17, and Jesus goes on to say, I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. See, so basically I want to stop there to point out that he's being sent to the Jews and the Gentiles or the ethnos. Basically, in scripture, there's two ethnicities, effectively. There's the Jews and then every other ethnicity. Uh, and so basically, that's all the people of the world. And Paul is being sent to all of them. Now, we know that, that generally Peter was regarded as the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was regarded to, as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's kind of a general distinction, but it, it did not limit them. Both Peter and Paul served both. They served the Jews and the Gentiles, where Paul, Peter was more focused on the Jews, Paul more focused on the Gentiles. And notice he says, I will rescue you from the people I'm sending you to, which means it's going to be trouble. I think that's a great picture for us all to remind us that as we walk with God, as we serve his purpose on this earth, we have to understand and be clear that we are in a war. The war between two seeds that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 at the time of the fall, where God reveals that he is going to execute a meta-narrative of redemption that will effectively be the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent is refers to Satan and his minions and the kingdom of darkness, and the seed of the woman refers to Christ and his followers, disciples, and the kingdom of light. So that's fundamentally the undergirding thinking here that it's assumed you understand that, and he's telling them you will fight a battle. You will fight a battle with the Jews and Gentiles, but I will rescue you. I will, I will guide you through this. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to rescue them every time because he does wind up incarcerated in Rome and he does eventually get martyred. But he rescued them a lot. That's the point. This will be a pattern of I will have to rescue you. And this happened, for example, in Philippi. It's a great example where he was incarcerated and rescued. So that's the imagery here is that he will be protected as he's executing the commission. So what is the commission that he's been given? Verse 17, I'm sending you to them, and now verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may have forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now there's a lot in there, but so let's just try to you know, go and unpack that just a little bit. For So they open their eyes. Now, keep in mind, Paul on the road to Damascus, his physical sight was gone. He was blinded. He didn't receive that back for three days. 
It's almost like that was symbolism for what you saw before you encountered me has to go away and I'm going to give you new ability to see the truth. So I think that's a way to think about that. And you basically, he's going to take what's been given to him now and give it to others. That is revelation of Jesus, the fact that he's alive and what this means. And of course, for Paul, he fully understood that Jesus was Lord in Christ and that fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. So now he had new vision for how to interpret scripture. And that's so important that we understand that because Christianity is firmly grounded in the Old Testament. You hear people today talking about, well, I don't, I don't read the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a law. We're not under law. We're under grace. Well, there's confusion there. You need to understand Christianity is rooted in the Old Testament scripture. For the first 300 years of Christianity, there was no New Testament. There were copies of apostolic writings that were used to help them understand the Old Testament better. And eventually there would be a New Testament canon adopted in the fourth century by the Ecclesia that became part of the scripture. But initially the Christians had simply the Old Testament canon with some apostolic writings. So that's, that's important. Christianity was formed and, and came out of Old Testament scripture. So open their eyes so they can see the truth, the revelation of God, the redemptive purpose of God revealed in the Old Testament and now, and now effected through the work of Christ, the vicarious atonement of Christ and the, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Now keep in mind also that the primary objective that God is doing right now and throughout all of history is restoring the uncontested rule of Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned, they contested the rule of God. They said, we can do it better, we don't need God. That's the core of the fallen nature is humanism, autonomy, independence of God or vanity. That's how we all come into this existence in that state only when we're born again do we are we empowered to move beyond that state into the empowered state to live as a son and daughter of the king. So the uncontested rule of Christ is a primary objective of the Father throughout the meta narrative. A secondary objective is to build a people of God. In the Old Testament, we went through the initial period where you had basically. Um, Prior to Genesis 11 or Genesis 12, people did not, there was not a selection made among the people. People were able to do as they wish. And what was revealed is the fallen, depraved condition of humanity as a result of the fall. And now in Genesis 12, you see, see the father revealing how he's going to execute the protevangelum of Genesis 3.15. That is the, the war between two seeds where the kingdom of light will prevail over kingdom of darkness, there will be a specific people of God amongst the ethnicities. And so that's where we have Abraham chosen, the Abrahamic promise given. The rest of the Old Testament is the working out of the, the, the law as an experiment to reveal the total depth of depravity of humanity and mankind's desperate need of a savior. So the people of God operating without divine empowerment in the Old Testament reveal they can never self-save, they will never obey the law, 
They can never make themselves righteous before God. They need a savior. Now in the New Testament, we have now, we have Christ has come, did, did for us what we can never do, which is obey the law perfectly, was the sacrifice for our sins because sin requires a payment and Christ was that payment. That payment was imputed to us. That was a gift of God. And now we have the Holy Spirit in us, regenerating us, and now enabling us, empowering us to live for Christ. So we now have the ability to live. And this is what they're beginning to see. They're seeing the, how things changed and how we now have a, a, an ecclesia that's empowered. And so the secondary thing that God's doing through history after restoring the uncontested will of Christ is building a people for himself. So that's what this is all about. So you need to contextualize that to really understand what Paul is telling them here. So Paul is explaining that he has been charged to go and explain all of this to the world. And specifically, he's going to focus in on the Gentiles. And what the, the explanation is, you've got to turn, repent from darkness and turn to light. Turn from Satan and turn to God. Turn, stop being a, a pawn of the spirit of Antichrist and become a servant of Christ. And as you do that, you will evidence the reality of the Holy Spirit's in you. Now, he doesn't explain that here. He does that in other places. But then the consequence of that, the wonderful consequence, is you your sins will be forgiven. That is, you will have eternal forgiveness and you will have a share in the inheritance. Remember, the Abrahamic promise was a land. That speaks of an inheritance, a future inheritance, and we know that will be a new creation. And so that's what Paul has been charged. That's his commission to go and explain all of this, which he has done masterfully throughout his time as we've watched and we've walked with him through the book of Acts. Now going on to verse 19. So then came Agrippa, I was not disobedient. I know that's a double negative there, but uh, means I was obedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached, that is, this is the word for proclaimed or brought a word to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, the ethnos, that they should repent, metanoia, and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. You see, Christianity is not, as is commonly viewed today, a ticket to heaven. It's not a fire insurance policy. It is an entrance into a life, a lifestyle of walking with God and doing things that please him. It's changing your thinking and therefore changing your living. Our life now no longer is about our will, our ways, our timing and our glory. It's all about God's will, God's ways, God's timing, God's glory. That's what it is to be a Christian. There, there's no other way of, to be a Christian. We have largely today in our culture of Christianity in the 21st century, and for some time, have adopted a very, very uh, weak view of this. We've, we've thought Christianity has just enabled us to spend eternal life with God, but we can live the way we want to live here and now. That's not Christianity. And you can see Apostle Paul is serious. He's looking for works worthy of repentance, works that are congruent with repentance, works that reveal repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. You see now, you say, wow, why were the Jews trying to kill you because of this? Because he is 
preaching a message that they don't want. They do not agree that Jesus was resurrected. They do not agree that he is Lord. They do not agree that he is the Messiah or Christ. They, they want to deny all of that. And so anyone that's putting that out there is an enemy. And so he went from being on the side of the Jews to an enemy of the Jews. So that's, that's why they were trying to seize him. They did not, they viewed him as a traitor. Verse 22, to this very day, I have had, I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great. That is, he's an eyewitness saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. In other words, he has tied his life to scripture, to fulfilling scripture, to speaking truth from scripture based on Jesus as Lord and Christ. Remember the the key to understanding the Old Testament is Acts 2.36, that you, uh, hero Israel, <clears throat> you can hear with certainty that this Jesus whom you crucified, God the Father, has made both Lord and Christ. That was it. That was the key message of the first, uh, first proclamation of the good news in Acts chapter 2, is who Jesus was. When you know who he is, then you look at the Old Testament and all the things it said about the Messiah. And now you unpack the Old Testament in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Verse 20, 23, Moses said would take place that the Messiah must suffer, which he did. He suffered on the cross. And that as the first, that is the first to rise from the dead, protos, which is, we get the word proton from that, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Light is metaphysical awareness of the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ, a truth about the Old Testament revealing the fallen state of mankind and Jesus coming in to remedy that fallen state and releasing mankind through his empowering presence to be able to do what mankind was created in the first place to do, which is to serve as God's ruling agents. That's the big picture message of Christianity. And it's largely lost today because we don't connect ourselves with the Old Testament well. And really, we don't connect well with the creation mandate. Creation mandate is the primary mandate of mankind. It is still in effect. We are here to serve as God's ruling agents wherever he plants us and wherever he gives us authority and he provides resources. We are to rule on his behalf. That's what we're charged to do. We're, we're his ruling agents. Now that's a big challenge because today we're, we're so focused on the simplistic message of just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and you can go live the way you want to live. That's not Christianity. That poses as Christianity, but it's not Christianity. Christianity is that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that is you now become a servant of Christ. You can't help but be a servant of Christ because you have the Spirit of God in you that's driving you, that's empowering you, that gives you the grace to believe, gives you the grace to, to believe the Bible as the Word of God, gives you the grace to discern the will of God and align with God. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is a lifestyle. It is a way of living aligned with the will and ways of God, the timing of God, and for the glory of God. All right, so that's, that's what Paul has been tasked to do. So now, verse 24, we have the reaction of Festus and Agrippa. And I think they interrupted him. I don't think Paul really finished his apologetic here. 
But first, Festus has to weigh in. He says this, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind. Paul, too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I speak, I'm speaking the words of truth and good judgment. That is sound thinking. I'm under self-control. This is not emotionalism. I am giving you truth. For the king knows about these matters. You see, I'm telling you things that are widely known and understood. Not everything, but a lot of these things are widely known. And I can speak boldly to him. That is the king, Agrippa, he's, he's around the Jewish people. He knows their customs and traditions. He knows a lot of the, the stories that, that are told about the Jewish history. He knows these things. Goes going on, he says, for I'm convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice. That is the king's notice. Since this was not done in a corner, it was not out of sight. It was out there plain for everyone to see. He goes on in 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? That is referring to the Old Testament prophets, referring to scripture. Do you believe scripture? I know you believe it. And this is a, a good opportunity to point out the way to think about believe. Uh, we have one word uh, that we call faith or belief, uh, but really there's, there are nuances to this. So the reformers used three, three ways to talk about this. They had the first way was notitia. Notitia referred to you, you, you know something. You can know that, that Jesus died on the cross. You can know that, all right? A census is for you a sense that that was really true. That really happened. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I, you know, I've read about that. I've heard about that, but I don't really know it really happened. It's another thing to say, no, it really happened. And if you assent to it, you really assent to it, you'll realize what it means. You'll see the metaphysical awareness of it, and you will then have fiducia, which is you will commit to a life of living as a servant because you will know that Jesus died as Lord in Christ. And now the only proper response to that is to, to live obedient to him. So fiducia is putting your, li putting your life aligned with that truth that you have ascended to, that truth that you have notitia of. So notitia, census fiducia, is the levels of commitment. Christians are called to fiducia. We live at the highest level, which we commit our lives to Christ. Going on in verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And the idea of easily there means for a short time, like this happened so quickly. I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily, that is whether in short time or with difficulty a long time, not only you, but all those who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these change. The king, the governor, Bernice, and all those sitting with them got up. So you can see that stirred them up. So they just stood up. And they had let, when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man has not done anything deserving of death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not been appealed to Caesar. So that is Paul's apologetic to Festus and Agrippa here in Acts 26. So what I want to do is just um, want to take an opportunity to read something to you. Uh, I have taken the three passages 
in Acts where the conversion of the Apostle Paul is recorded. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. So this is the third one. If you go read those three accounts, each of them are slightly different, but you pull them all together, you get, I think, a pretty complete picture of what happened. Keep in mind, each account is given for a purpose. So this last account was given for the purpose of getting this truth in front of, of, of the ethnos. The, these are civil leaders. These are not Jews. Whereas the prior accounts were given, the first one in Acts chapter 9 was for the purpose of the Jews. And then Acts chapter 22, he's beginning to straddle the fence between the Jews and the ethnos, and now he's focused on the ethnos. So I've kind of consolidated the accounts and tried to compile it and come up with what I think is a harmonized account of that. I just want to read that to you. So Paul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, which was about 185 miles, with authority and a commission from chief priests to arrest those who call on the name of Jesus. Remember that Paul operated under authority and he was sent. He didn't just go, he was sent. At midday, that is at noon, suddenly Paul saw an intense light brighter than the sun. That's a really bright light. And it flashed and shined around him. So it just all of a sudden is flashing there. I don't know if it flashed multiple times. And then it's, it's, it's just shown all around the people, all around the party. And, and his traveling companions, they all fell to the ground, all of them. Paul heard a voice. The traveling companions heard a sound. We don't know that the distinction between the voice and the sound. I presume that the voice was intelligible to Paul, but it just sounded like a sound to his companions. It was in Aramaic, which was a Hebrew dialect. And basically the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now the word goads there is a reference to a, a cattle prod. Uh, as I understand, when they, they would plow a field in those days, the farmer would, would have the reins of the cattle in the left hand, and the right hand, they would have a stick with a point on it called a goad. And they would use that stick to keep the cattle going and poke at them. So what he seems to be saying here is, when you are going against truth, you're going against Christ, it's, it's futile. You're kicking against the goads. You're not going to win. You know, the goat's going to be stronger than you. So Paul asked, who are you, Lord? There's no question that Paul's talking to the Lord. I just need to know who you are. There's not going to be a debate here, a discussion. I get it. Jesus said to Paul, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Paul asked, what should I do? The Lord said, get up and to stand on your feet. You see, when God, God intercepts you, and he brings you to himself. He brings you to himself to, to fulfill a purpose. So he's going to put you on your feet. He expects you to get up and do what he directs you to do. Stand your feet and go into the city. Now keep in mind, he's, Paul's blind at this time. So he has to be led by his, his companions. And Jesus goes on and said, you will be told what you, what's been assigned for you to do for I have appeared for this purpose to appoint you as a servant, an under rower, and a witness, a martus, of what will what you have seen metaphysically. This is he's blind physically. It's metaphysical sight that's the that's the primary focal point here, and he wants you to recognize that this bright light was to blind you from what you thought you saw, so you could see the truth. 
You didn't see truth. You were following false thinking, and I'm going to blind you of that to give you the truth. So that's the idea here. Paul's traveling companions saw the light and fell to the ground, but, but saw no one. They heard the sound, but did not hear the voice of Jesus. Though Paul's eyes were open, he was physically blinded and could see nothing. His traveling companions led him by the hand to Damascus, to the home of Judas on Straight Street. What an interesting name of a street, and what an interesting owner. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, and on Straight Street. It's kind of ironic. For three days, he was unable to see. Physically, he fasted and prayed. Now, in Damascus, there was a devout, which meant obedient to the law. That's what devout meant. Someone who followed the law. Devout doesn't mean somebody that feels good about God. It means somebody who obeys God. Uh, keep that in mind, because we we're built real good about wanting to feel good about God, but we're not real good at wanting to obey God today. So he was devout. He was obedient to the law. He was a disciple of Jesus, a man named Ananias, who had a good reputation with all the Jews in the city. You see, the Jews weren't upset with him. He was a very law-abiding person, but he was a follower of Jesus, and Paul was there to arrest him. The Lord commanded Ananias in a vision to go to Jesus' home to find Paul, who was praying. In a vision, Paul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, Ananias apparently has enough knowledge about what's going on to know uh, this guy is coming here for a really bad purpose. So he has a conversation with the Lord. Lord, Ananias answered, uh, and this is important because Paul didn't have a conversation like this. Ananias did. Maybe that's a picture for us. Um, maybe we tend to be too quick to have these conversations like Ananias. We should just be obedient. But anyway, Lord's patient with us. So Lord Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on his, his, your name. But the Lord said to him, go. He's, the Lord's not going to engage in a conversation with Ananias. He's going to say, go. Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the ethnos, the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How do you like that? Called to Christ to suffer. That's a picture for all of us. Jesus also said to Paul, I will rescue for you from your people, from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to, and I will open so that you can open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. An inheritance, the promise of Abraham again. Forgiveness of sins and inheritance in the next existence. Ananias went to Jesus' home and he entered the house and placed his hands on Paul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias continued speaking to Paul. He said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. You see, he was blinded, so he's talking about metaphysical awareness, see the righteous one, to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. At once, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. We don't know what that was. And he regained his sight, his physical sight now. He's been, he's been gaining 
metaphysical awareness, and now he's going to get his physical sight back, which will support him in his duty to go take metaphysical awareness to the people he's assigned to teach. Then Ananias said, well, why, why are you delaying? What are you waiting on? Get up, be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of Jesus. Paul obeyed, and after taking some food, he regained strength. So this is an example where baptism happens quickly after an encounter with Christ. Now that isn't always the case, but in this case it was. Many times we need time to validate that there has really been an encounter with Christ, and the only way you can validate that, according to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, is through watching a person live. Do they increasingly live like Christ? Are they being transformed? where they think and live like Christ progressively, then if you see that, that's a sign the Spirit of God has regenerated them and now indwells them. But Paul, it's very clear in this situation, he's been touched, been regenerated, so now you can baptize him and he can get on with the business, and he does. He immediately starts proclaiming the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ and unpacking the Old Testament in light of that truth. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time, and immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him. Barnabas was his first spiritual father. Ananias was not necessarily a father figure. He might have been, but Barnabas was really a father that took him under his wing and help him. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to him how Paul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is recounting the story to others. Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem. So he was taking him to Jerusalem from time to time, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. He conversed with and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Jews who lived as part of the dispersion in Greece, but they tried to kill him. And at some point he fell into a trance and Jesus told Paul, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But he said, Lord, you, they know that in the synagogue, after synagogue, I also, I, would, I, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, that is the Lord said to Paul, go because I'm sending you away to the ethnos, the Gentiles. When the brothers, that is the fellow Christians found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to tempor temporarily to Tarsus for safety. You see, Paul became forbidden, forbidden fruit, if you wish. The Gentiles did not believe he really was a Christian. The Jews felt viewed him as a traitor. So he was persona non grata everywhere. And he couldn't believe why he, people wouldn't accept him. Even his father, the Barnabas, was not able to overcome those objections. So they did what you should do in a situation like this. When you have a person in trouble and there's not provision, there's not protection, there's not safety, you send people home. That is a great picture for all of us. He sent him home. After a few years, he returned to his work, to the Gentiles. Now, how did that happen? Paul was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, he preached to those in Damascus first, 
and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized him in the temple in Jerusalem and were trying to kill him to this very day. So this was the apostle Paul. This is what happened to him during the early years. He did not get reestablished back in the fullness of his calling until his father went to get him. Yes, he did not send himself. He didn't, was not self-commissioned. Barnabas retrieved him in Acts chapter 12 is a record of when the, the Lord started working in Antioch and the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders in, of the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. Antioch recognized the spirit moving, touching lives, transforming lives, and he knew he needed help, so he went looking for Paul and Tarsus. That was a why he had to take a trip to Tarsus to get him, find him, and bring him back. And then they labored together for about a year uh, there in Antioch. And eventually, they were part of the community in Antioch, and it's from that community they were sent out on their apostolic journeys. So that's a little bit of a synopsis and um, harm and harmonization of the various accounts we have of the Apostle Paul. So let me give you a quick application, the sovereignty of God in salvation. Since the fall of mankind in the garden, the proclivity of man for man has been and continues to be to presume the potency to self-save. Immediately when Adam and Eve sinned, they were convinced, they were convicted with shame about their unworthy condition to be in the presence of God and sought to remedy their condition by making garments of fig leaves. Quickly, this proved to be fruitless. Nevertheless, as their heirs, we humans default to the same thinking. We tend to try to make our own garments of fig leaves. We try to perform to make ourselves acceptable. We try to think we can do enough good works for God to be pleased with us. It is not possible. Nevertheless, we have this default thinking that's in all of us that presumes the potency to self-save. Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus is an example of this deranged thinking. Paul didn't Paul was trying in his own effort to make himself worthy of God. Like all humans, he thought he was doing great things for God by persecuting the Christians. In his letter to the Philippians, he called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Nevertheless, his works, uh, work attempts at working his way to self-save were futile. They were inadequate. It's only by the grace of God that Paul was intercepted by Christ from his futile way of thinking and living, and he was converted to Christianity because of the power of God, the sovereign will of God, the choice of God. Paul was not seeking God. He was not choosing God. He was not trying to be a Christian. He was not seeker-friendly at all. He was seeker-persecuting. And so this is, this is a great picture for us. So we have to understand, Paul was intercepted by Jesus at the sovereign pleasure of Jesus. There was no human agent, that is no preacher, and no, one, no, no message proclaimed, there was no meeting, there was no altar call, there was nothing. Just Jesus intercepting people on the road of doing things that were sinful. Paul was not seeking Jesus, nor did he choose Jesus. Rather, without any human agency, Paul was intercepted by Jesus. The event was described as a bright light from heaven that blinded Paul and his traveling companions, causing them to fall to the ground. Paul instinctively knew he was in the presence of the Lord and responded by crying out and asking for the Lord to identify himself. 
Jesus said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And then he added, why are you persecuting me? By persecuting Jesus' followers, Paul was persecuting Jesus and trying to make himself worthy of the Father, which that could never even be possible. But he didn't understand that. The added comment simply emphasized the obvious. Paul's persecution of Christians, which seemed so successful, was in the end futile. It is difficult to kick, in the kids, kick against the goads. Now, second, after being led to Damascus, a human agent was employed at the sovereign pleasure of God. Ananias did not have to be used. We have to be clear on that. No human agent is ever necessary. We, are, we serve at God's pleasure and for his purpose and as he chooses us to serve. We, there's no demand here that we have to do something. This illustrates that salvation has a present purpose here now. We are saved to something, to do something here and now. We, the common thinking today is you're saved from, for eternal life, so you won't go into the lake of fire, and you can go live the way you want to live. That's not what Scripture says. Ephesians 2, 8-10 is clear on this, that we're saved by grace through faith. That's not of ourselves, but the gift of God, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created for a work assignment that God created us to do before the foundation of the world. That work assignment's here, now, before we transition into the presence of God. Now, I've just paraphrased that, but I think that's the sense of the text. So we have to understand, this is the way God works. We have to also understand there's a future promise. That is, when we transition into the presence of the, of the Father, into standing before the Son, that, that, that we will have not only forgiveness of sins, our names will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which will transition us into the next existence. Only though that book contains the names of everyone that will be the people of God into eternity. Please be clear that there is a people of God and it's not all people. Uh, it's common today for people to talk about things like, well, doesn't God love everyone? Well, you have to understand, God works with purpose and intent. And Romans 9 tells us that he makes vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. Now, we don't like that. And the illustration of that is Jacob and Esau, where he said in that same text in Romans 9, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before they came out of the womb, before they'd done anything. He said, wow, that just doesn't seem fair to us. But we have to know this is God's sovereign pleasure. He's the creator. He can choose how he wants to function. So we have an eternal existence for those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. No one can earn that position. No one can pay for that position. No one can bargain for that position. It is sovereignly given, and when you have it, it ought to make you really grateful. And you've got to be clear that God has a purpose for those that don't get whose names are not written in it. It's his sovereign pleasure. It may be painful to you. It may be a friend. It may be a relative that you recognize does not, their name is not there. You've, you've got to let God be God and quit putting demands on him that God function the way you want him to function. So when you get this, you recognize, okay, there is a future aspect of salvation, but it's, it's not the whole thing. And God is working in ways that I don't fully understand and get. And many times I don't like it all, but this is the way God is. 
So Paul is illustrating the, the way of salvation that God is outlining in the scripture. In the practice of Christianity today, there appears to be a proclivity to, to, uh, to think about agents proclaiming the message of Jesus. This is a big deal. The proclamation of the gospel, the pulpit, you know, gospel meetings, those kinds of things. This is because we've kind of gotten skewed in terms of what scripture really say. We need to go back and look more carefully at scripture. Uh, because perhaps on some level, what we're doing with how we proclaim the gospel today is just fig leaves. It's just performance. We're trying to perform, do things for God. And maybe like Paul on the road to Damascus, he thought he was doing great things for God. We probably think the same way about the way we proclaim the message of the gospel, not realizing that God is not going to save everyone. Narrow is the way that leads to life. If you enter thereby, this is what Jesus said. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many entered thereby. He said that too. And those, those are not refrigerator verses. They're not verses that we, we are, they're popular with us. We've got to go back and let Christianity be defined by the word God. We can't be the definer of it. Every Christian is like Paul. We get intercepted by Jesus to serve God's sovereign pleasure. All of us have a command and a commission. When we're intercepted, we are intercepted to serve the purpose of God. We're not to serve our own purpose. We are not set free from the power of sin and death to do what we want. We're set free from the power of sin and death to serve the purpose of God in the kingdom of light. We're transferred from being a slave of the Antichrist to being a slave of Christ. We've just changed masters. We've got to get clear. That's what Christianity really is. Freedom is freedom to serve Christ. This is to be done holistically in every area of life, every jurisdiction, everything, because Jesus is Lord of all. So may we have the grace to learn how to live like this. And may the Apostle Paul's experience on the road to Damascus be a picture for us for how God works in the process of salvation, his purpose and intent of saving each one of us, and his sovereign pleasure in choosing how to use each one of us. So may we have grace to get that and to walk in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.